It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Jason, I'm going to surprise you with a subject matter today that you asked for, and I think that you thought that this was a joke, but I'm taking you seriously and calling your bluff. How long ago did I request this? Not too long ago. I also think it's funny that you called me Jace. I did? Yeah, you just called me Jace. I didn't even notice. Yeah, so... Are you sure I said Jace or did it just like kind of cut out a little bit? No, you said Jace, which is kind of adorable and quaint because the only person that consistently calls me Jace is my mom, Susan. And then all of a sudden, Brittany Littleton, our dear friend who runs Little Love Rescue, who we still got to get on the podcast. Uh, I talked to her briefly. She's like, oh, are you guys still like, can you have me on the podcast? So yes, Brittany, I think we would like to have you, of course. You just called her Brittany. Brittany. Oh my God, we're just messing up names all day. She calls me Jace. And out of the blue, she called me Jace. I was like, my mom's the only person who calls me that. So now you just called me Jace. So anyway, Whoa. it's cute. I didn't even notice it. I kind of wish I could rewind easily and go listen because I don't quite believe you. But I guess uh, I wanted to say the proof will be in the pudding. I don't oh, know why. Oh, <laughs> hey. The proof. That's such... What does that even mean? That, oh, my God. You know what? Hold on. We have to pause. Origin of the proof. Okay, hold on. Like, does that mean like you have to wait until pudding sets to know if the recipe is going to work out? I just found an article on NPR, which we will link to in the show notes at wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can go to the podcast section, access the show notes for this episode. What does the proof in the pudding mean? Well, the proof in the pudding is a new twist on a very old proverb. The original version is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And what that meant was you had to try out your food in order to know what it was good. And so apparently it's British in origin. And dating back centuries, a reference to pudding meant more than just a sweet dessert that we associate it with now. So apparently the original meaning is you had to try out your food in order to know whether it was good or not. All right. Well, nice little factoid that kind of leads us into today's subject matter, which is, take a guess. I don't know. Is it going to be about poop? No. It's not going to be about poop? Maybe. I mean, I think that'll come up. That could come up in this conversation. <laughs> I was just reaching. I'm like, does she want to talk about poop, digestion, digestive issues? Are we going to share funny fart stories? Because I have plenty of those. In fact, if we go there, I have, I'm going to go on record and say, I know there are a lot of funny fart stories in the world. This one is, I would put this to the test with anyone's funny fart story. It's that good. Well, now I feel like you have to share it. Right now, before we get into the subject? I don't know. How about we save it for the end? Will you write a note for yourself so we don't forget? I definitely won't forget. <laughs> it's that good. It's phenomenal. An unforgettable fart. If there was a Fart Hall of Fame, this story would have been encrusted on a plaque in the Fart Hall of Fame. Have you ever told me this before? I don't believe I have. Because you're talking as if it's like, I find it hard to believe that you've never told me this story. So we'll find out. And it gives a very good reason for someone to either listen to the end or choose not to. Yeah, well... Maybe they don't want to hear it. For some people, (laughs) (laughs) farts make some people very uncomfortable. Well, newsflash, it's a part of being alive as a human being and apparently a part of uh, being a French bulldog as well. (laughs) Because my Frenchy bulldog is a fart machine. Is it audible most times or you can just smell it? Oh, no, it's audible. 
Oh. Oh, it's audible. And it's kind of TMI, not TMI. This might get uncomfortable. Welcome to the show. She has a pretty consistent skunk-like tinge to her. It's kind of horrible. Like it's acrid to the point where it could like strip paint off the walls. It gets bad. And FYI, anyone who is not acquainted with French Bulldogs, apparently it's pretty much a cliche that Frenchies have some of the most awful farts in the dog world. And now I am the beneficiary and recipient of that for the past two and a half years. Wow. It kind of makes me sad, actually. Like I feel a little bit bad for them with all of their breathing issues, digestive issues. It's a little sad. Yeah, it's it's hard out. It, I mean, you know, when you look like a cute gremlin bat pig, there are also downsides. You can look that cute, but then also nature is like, Haha, we're going to make you ridiculously irresistibly cute, but then also give you massive flatulence and the ability not to breathe out of your own nose. Good luck. Well, I hate to break it to you, but this episode is not going to be entirely about flatulence, Jason. No, okay. What we're going to talk about today is something that you asked for, so I'm delivering, and that is the subject of bread. I asked for this? You said a few episodes ago that you wanted to do a whole episode on bread, so here we are. We're going to talk about bread. Okay, fair enough. Lead it off, Whitney. Lead. I don't remember making this request. What? Was I high? Not that I was aware of. It, I don't remember what the subject matter was, but you were like, I could do a whole episode about bread. And you were like incredibly proud of it. Oh. You're like, I'm going to go into this was like last week. Dear listener, if you are new to the podcast, we do three episodes every single week since we started this podcast in December of 2019. And so often, Whitney, I make braggadocious claims and forget that I do it. So I will take your word and I'm sure that I did say that. I just completely forget saying it. Wow. I feel a little stunned, Jason, that you would forget such an important subject matter. I'm sorry. But here we are. So let's talk about bread. Let's talk about bread. You ready? I'm ready. You brought it up. So let's talk about what. Well, I was hoping that you would kick things off as soon as I brought this up. But now you're acting like you've never considered this before. I'm not really even sure where to kick this off. Other than I think that bread... (laughs) (laughs) I think that bread has gotten a bad rap lately because, okay, here's the deal. I have started to eat more bread than usual during the quarantine period that we have been in and at the time of this recording continue to be in. And I've noticed my girlfriend, Laura, I've mentioned her here on the podcast several times. She brings home the bread, literally. There's a French bakery that uses apparently artisanal grains and non-GMO grains and heirloom grains. And uh, she'll bring home sourdough and rye and different varietals. And I find because of the quality of the grain they're using, Whitney, I don't get bloated. I don't get flatulent. Going back to farts always goes back to farts. None of that happens. And it's an interesting experiment, right? Because you and I have both been, I would say, primarily gluten-free for years now. I mean, I remember when I first started experimenting with gluten-free eating was all the way back in 2006 after a legendary bender at a vegan bakery in Columbus, Ohio, where I ordered one of everything and made myself sick. That's another story. But I've been doing mostly gluten-free for years, but lately I've been doing sourdough. I've been doing rye. My favorite bread of all time is pumpernickel. And even when I've gone off the gluten-free path, if I choose a really high quality heirloom, non-GMO, usually a European style of wheat, I don't feel bad. And interestingly enough, as an offshoot, when I went to Italy for the first time back in 2005, I remember going all around the country 
and eating pizza and eating bread and eating pasta, and I did not get sick or bloated. And I just going down the research rabbit hole, not all grains are created equal. We can dive deeper into that. But I'm curious, Whitney, I, obviously you've been doing mostly gluten-free. You've done some really successful YouTube videos about it on your channel, but what's been your relationship to bread and baked goods and things like that during quarantine? Have you gone down that road? Oh, I certainly have. And sometimes I really regret it, to be honest. <laughs> Because it's fascinating with food sensitivities and maybe just food in general. I think in a way, food sensitivities almost feel more frustrating than what I imagine it would be like to have allergies. Food allergies are very dangerous. They can literally be a matter of life or death. And you might need to carry around an EpiPen or have proactive measures. And I'm sure that's terrifying. But the plus side is that you know not to have it. You have a very firm boundary. And I think it's in a way easier to get yourself to stay away from sticky situations. And for me with my food sensitivities, it's really interesting because sometimes I think they're all in my head and then I'll be a little bit more lenient have something that I'm pretty sure I'm sensitive to, even though like you can't, it's really hard to even find this through tests. I've been wanting to do some more food tests and there have been some that have come out over the years. But when I first started noticing my food sensitivities, I didn't feel like there was a lot of resources available to me. And I went to doctors and spent years trying to get to the root of it. And actually no doctor was very helpful. They didn't even think that it was a food related issue that I had. I think they thought I was allergic to something else or sensitive to something else, had some sort of nasal issue. So I had to pretty much figure it out on my own, which then made me wonder if it was all in my head and question it a lot. And then there's a lot of media around this, especially back in 2010 when I went mostly gluten-free. I was pretty strict gluten-free for a while and it was very trendy and still is semi-trendy, but that was, I feel like, the peak or getting close to the peak of gluten-free trend. And so a lot of people were coming out saying like, if you're not allergic to gluten, there's no reason to avoid it. And so I would feel really silly being gluten-free because I knew I wasn't allergic to it. It didn't show up in any of the tests that I took and I didn't have any allergic reactions, but I did have a lot of symptoms that also were related. I had symptoms from other foods too. And that became really tricky because then I wouldn't know which symptom was related to which. So for example, when I went gluten-free and started feeling much better, I thought, okay, great. Like I, I don't feel good on gluten. And I wasn't even sure. I think it took me a while to even call it a sensitivity. And when you go gluten-free, many of us will look for all these gluten-free alternatives. Back in 2010, there weren't that many vegan and gluten-free options. Now there is a plethora of them, but it was really hard to find gluten-free vegan bread because it would either have like milk or eggs or honey or whatever other animal product in it. And so I started eating products made from rice and made from corn. And then a lot of gluten-free vegan products back in 2010 were loaded with processed ingredients. It was also challenging to find simple products that with just a few ingredients. So the next thing that happened is recognizing that it wasn't just gluten that didn't make me feel good. It was corn as well. And I felt really frustrated when I noticed that. So I stopped eating corn as much as possible. And then over the years, I just started noticing other things like I had almond sensitivities. And so I started to have like these major food categories that I wasn't eating. And then I kept question and still do sometimes like I still 
over 10 years later, wonder if this is all in my head and I haven't yet had a test done to really point me in the right direction. So yeah, food sensitivities, I feel like are complex. A lot of people don't believe in them, which makes it challenging. I think they simultaneously, though, are becoming more common and accepted. It's not like I'm concerned people are going to make fun of me or question me too much. But you do have to be a little delicate around this because some people do hop on these food trends because they're trendy, not because they actually need to. And I think that's kind of clouded the experience. So it becomes very cliche to be gluten-free, for example. And there's a lot of wait staff at restaurants, for example, who hate it when someone says that they're gluten-free because it makes their job harder. They have to be very careful. And then there's like resentment that's built up. Are people just saying that because they think they're going to lose weight or something? So it's actually a very complex thing. And my whole relationship to bread in general, Jason, to bring it back to that original question of yours is how I've been eating it. Off and on I do. And it's to me really a crapshoot. Like sometimes I can have gluten like you mentioned, and it really depends on the source. Some gluten I feel decent eating. And that might be a sourdough, which is a little bit gentler on the stomach, or that might be a bread that's coming from a source that might be European or something, or maybe it's heirloom sourced, or maybe it's sprouted or something like that. So there's so many factors, but sometimes those foods don't make me feel good either. And I can feel really confident about having a certain type of gluten and feel awful afterwards. So it has been very, very tricky. I guess every day I just kind of have to be willing to roll the dice if I'm going to consume any form of gluten. So I try not to. Yeah. It's been an interesting experiment for me too, in the sense of to just go way back to childhood. My mom, Susan, discovered pretty quickly that I had a very bad allergy to dairy products. And even as a kid, you get older and you realize you're allergic to something. And yet I remember going to school and feeling jealous that my friends would get like a ice cream cone from McDonald's or the legendary Frosty from Wendy's. If anybody used to go to Wendy's or still does go to Wendy's, that strange, bizarre Frosty they have, which was so delicious and malty. I would Wait, what was it strange about it? Well, I feel like the Frosty it was somewhere in some no man's land between like an ice cream and a smoothie. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't. <laughs> it's like a milkshake. And not quite. It was a little too thick to be a milkshake. I feel like it was like it was its own category. A Frosty True. is its own category. And also, spoiler alert, my first culinary job was the grill master at Wendy's. And I did get to finally look. This was what was I, 17? I got to look at the ingredient list in the dry mix for the Frosty at Wendy's. It is not something you want to be consuming. I'll leave it at that. Oh my God. It's horrifying. I used to love Frosties, especially like dipping French fries in Frosties. That was very satisfying. We did, as a side note, find a less processed, high quality ingredient, plant-based and keto, and I think also paleo version of that, which is Cave Shake. Or no, no, they changed the name to Space Shake, right? Yeah, they changed the freaking name. I think it was called Cave Shake to be like a play on paleo. Yes. But then maybe they change it to Space Shake because it's like something from outer space or something that an astronaut might consume. I'm not sure why they called it that. I don't know, but you hear the consternation in my voice for two reasons. I love, loved, loved Cave Shake. I loved the name. 
I loved the formula. They used to have it in these cute little jars. It was thick. And then recently, I'm not throwing them under the bus. I'm just, we got to be honest and we got to get uncomfortable. They rebranded as Space Shake. They repackaged it into almost like a plastic pouch, a squeeze pouch. And this was really cool though. I went to Costco at the very beginning of quarantine lockdown and they had a case of Space Shake. I'm like, I'll give them another roll. And it's just not as good. In my opinion, it's not as good. So anyway, we still have mad love for them. I love Space Shake. It's just the OG formula, my favorite of all time. Backtracking. Had a really, really aggressive dairy allergy, still do, which when people have asked me like, oh, don't you miss milk and blah, I'm like, I never missed it in the first place because it always made me feel violently ill. Gluten, I never had that kind of allergic reaction of doubled over in pain, vomiting, shivers, like bad allergic reaction. I did notice though, you're talking about sensitivity, Whitney, that once I got more in tune with my body and in recent episodes, we've been talking a lot about intuition. In future episodes, we talk uh, deeper into intuitive eating principles. And for me, I think, like I said, right around 2005, 2006, I just started to realize when I would go and mash a bunch of bagels, mash a bunch of pizza, throw down like five cupcakes at once, I would not feel so good. And so as I experimented with more gluten-free option, even the ones that were more processed, like you were talking about, I wouldn't feel that level of bloating and kind of digestive or intestinal distress. Again, it was never violent, but I think I did have a pretty acute sensitivity to it. But as I went down deeper into this gluten rabbit hole, right? You and I touched on the heirloom status, which just to share with the listener, an heirloom grain or an heirloom vegetable or fruit means that the seed or seeds that were grown, used to grow this product, have not been hybridized or genetically modified. And in many cases, some brands will claim that the seed lineage they're using, their heirloom seeds, have been passed down for generations, in some cases, hundreds of years. That's very cool when you think about how they've tended to and curated and protected those seeds for multiple generations of farmers. Like I think that's just rad in general, but you notice that in a lot of studies, the human body tends to process and utilize the nutrients in heirloom foods differently because they haven't been genetically modified or hybridized. So that's one aspect of this gluten equation. The other thing too is a lot of the commercial wheat, corn, soy, and oats, first of all, are fed to livestock and factory farmed animals here in the US. But the ones that go for human consumption, they're often, especially big, big manufacturers, store them in grain silos. Now, the problem with these grain silos is there's a propensity for mold and yeast to grow in these silos. And oftentimes these grains are kept for weeks or even months in these silos. So it may not necessarily be just the genetic modification or the hybridization of the seeds. A lot of the gluten intolerances and a lot of the gluten allergies I have read in certain studies say that it's from actually the toxic mold and toxic yeast that is growing on these grains and these seeds as a result of mismanaged storage practices. I don't think that I was aware of that, but that makes sense because the same thing can be true of a lot of different foods like coffee and nuts. I mean, mold can be a big issue and it certainly is helpful to examine where your food's coming from no matter what it is because I think if the source is high quality, if you know that it's being manufactured in a specific way, if it's grown locally, then it doesn't have to be stored or transported in some of these crazy ways. And I think this just goes back towards that wonderful phrase that you have, Jason, which is you pay with your purse or you pay with your person. <laughs> because with a lot of foods in general, it can seem really expensive, but you're usually paying for 
to kind of like skip over some of these shortcuts, right? Like when something's cheap, shortcuts might be taken in order to make it cheaper to offer up to the public. And that way, like the storage might not be as great as somebody else who's taking more care and checking for mold and being very mindful or not storing things as long. And it is interesting. I feel like bread in general is such a comfort food. It's something that immediately gives me a feeling of warmth and satisfaction. And it was interesting when I was doing the keto diet, that was actually one of the most challenging parts because there aren't a lot of keto vegan breads. Again, I feel like this is going to change over time. For some reason, I have a tendency to try out certain ways of eating on the earlier end. Like when I went vegan in 2003, there weren't a lot of vegan options. And now there's countless. When I went gluten-free, there weren't a lot of gluten-free vegan options. Now there's a ton. When I went keto, there weren't a ton of vegan keto products. Now there's a lot more, but I still think we have a long way to go. And um, I just feel like I'm a little ahead of my time. And for me, some of the tougher times when I would like have certain cravings for foods is when I wanted something comforting like bread or pasta, and I would try to make it myself. And there's some decent vegan keto bread recipes out there. I can't remember if we put anything like that in my cookbook my with uh, Chef Nicole Dursway, who did all the recipes. I don't think we have anything bread-like in there, but there's another lovely book. I think it's just called Vegan Keto. I'll link to that in the show notes by, I feel like it's Liz McDowell. Is that her name? I'll make sure it's all in there off the top of my head. Don't remember the exact details, but that'll be in the show notes for you, dear listener, if you want to check any of this out at wellevator.com, spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And anyways, I would try making my own vegan keto breads, but they were like based on like psyllium husks and seeds. And it just kind of wasn't the same as like a glutinous bread. And so every once in a while, I'd have a little. And then going back to your original question, Jason, about my relationship with bread during COVID and quarantine, I did find that I would have it a little bit more often. And I think it is because of that comfort factor. Like we're under so much stress And sometimes we want comfort foods just simply because the effort it would take to get our needs met emotionally can feel so intense. And just being able to eat something that makes you feel good is so relieving, even if it's a quick relief. But the problem is, for me, I get those reactions. So my food reactions are still confusing to me after all these years. But generally, something that I eat will cause me to sneeze a lot, will get bloated and inflamed. Sometimes my skin gets itchy, my scalp gets itchy, and sometimes my energy is completely zapped, I'm exhausted, and I'm just blowing my nose and sneezing all day long. And it's almost debilitating. And that usually is what happens to me when I eat certain types of gluten. So even though it's comforting in the moment, it's definitely not comforting in the long run. And some people don't realize this, but food sensitivities can take upwards of 48 hours to show up in your system. So it might not be an immediate effect. You might eat something and think you're in the clear and then two days later be suffering. I think it brings up an interesting choice that we face, and I say we collectively as human beings, that we can have a craving or a desire to have some sort of an emotional experience with the food we're eating, right? I think one of the reasons that foodies exist, and I mean, at the time of this, food culture is just insane. It's massive. I mean, not just because of the effect of Food Network and Cooking Channel, which I was so grateful to be a part of, but you look at Instagram, food bloggers, cookbook authors getting $100,000 advances. I mean, food culture is crazy, 
but we examine why people have a deeply visceral emotional connection to food. For most humans, it's not simply this intellectualization of I'm eating food for fuel and that's where the buck stops. People are deeply passionate in many ways. That's why a lot of people may not choose to eat foods that would be, say, healthier or more healing for their bodies because I don't want to give up X, whatever that is, or my family's been eating this way for generations and this is just how we do it. But I think what you're talking about is the moment-to-moment decision, Whitney, where maybe we are faced with a choice of really wanting to try something, but rolling the dice in the sense that it might make us feel like crap. Those situations where you're like, okay, it wasn't that emotionally charged of a moment, but as an example, you and I went to go try recently a new coffee house here in Los Angeles called Little Barn Coffee House, and you and I were, I think, the one of the only three patrons there, and we were eating in a socially distanced patio, but both of the sandwiches had gluten. We tried these two breakfast sandwiches. I think I got a croissant witch, and you got like a vegan sausage McMuffin-y type thing. And I remember thinking like, man, I really hope I don't feel like crap afterward after I eat this. But that's always the thing you're going to roll the dice on if you eat something you're sensitive to is the balance and the choice between, okay, I have a curiosity of trying a new food or a craving or an emotional need for comfort versus eh, I may feel like crap afterward right? And that's always to me such an interesting decision to make. Absolutely. And that actually is a good segue into our sponsor for this episode, which is Bio Optimizers, because they have a product called Gluten Guardian. And I love their tagline for this. (laughs) It's, It's eat gluten and get away with it. That's a brilliant tagline. It really is. And I've been taking it since they sent it to us for a few weeks. Have you tried it yet, Jason? I actually have because, as I mentioned, my girlfriend Laura brings home every single Sunday night after her gig at the farmer's market. She will inevitably bring home three giant bags of bread, some that we'll keep for ourselves, most of which we actually go to a few spots here in Los Angeles and hand it out to homeless and houseless people, which is such a wonderful feeling to do that. But we keep some of the loaves, like I mentioned, sourdough, rye, pumpernickel, some of the cooler loaves. And since we did receive the amazing Gluten Guardian, I've been taking it before I have a sandwich. This morning, I had some cherry jelly and almond butter on toast, and I popped three or four of them at a time. And honestly, I have not had, since I started taking this, any kind of rumblings, any kind of distension, any kind of bloating. So it's in the few weeks we've been taking it, I've been putting it to the test. And so far, it's been really effective and very cool to see the results, meaning there have been no flare-ups at all in terms of sensitivity. I've been experiencing the same thing. And it's tricky when it comes to taking digestive enzymes because some of them work really well and it's very obvious and some of them are more subtle. And other times, as I mentioned, since my food sensitivities have so many factors, I'm not immediately sure if it was the gluten that I was eating or an enzyme. But I've been taking this one consistently and I found that if I take it right before or during a meal that contains gluten, I will feel okay. And I went on their website, which we'll link to in the show notes at wellevator.com because I think we have a discount code for them, don't we, Jason? We do indeed. Yeah. The discount code is wellevator10, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R and the numeral 10, one zero, and you save 10% on your order of Gluten Guardian and all their products. We'll talk more probably either later in this episode or future episodes about their proteolytic enzymes, which I have been actually taking in my recovery from gout. And I'll talk more about that. But the Gluten Guardian, it's been clutch. 
much, Whitney. Bagels, bread, pastries. There's actually a new bakery. So here in LA, so many good bakeries popping up. So many great small businesses called Just What I Needed for any Angelinos. It's in the Frogtown neighborhood. And most of her stuff has gluten. She has a few gluten-free options, but I'll actually take the gluten guardian with me. Like I said, three or four pills and pop it before I have like, oh my God, she's got these danishes, Whitney. I know this is a tangent. <laughs> she's got vegan cheese danishes that she'll do fresh cherry, fresh blueberry, fresh apricot, and holy crap, it's amazing. But I know if I pop a few of these gluten guardians, I can go crazy town on a Danish and feel totally fine afterward. And what a joy to be able to do that, right? If you go onto the BioOptimizers website, which again, we'll link to along with that discount code for anyone who's curious, they have a really cool video that I just saw today and is a test between a liquid with the gluten guardian added to it and a liquid without it. And then they drop a piece of bread into it. And after a certain amount of time, you see how the gluten guardian dissolves the bread and then the water without the bread, the bread's like still fully intact. And again, you got to take some of these videos with a grain of salt. It's really only when you experiment with them that you'll know if it's going to work for you or not. And these are designed to support your digestion, to help with things like gas, bloating, and indigestion, which is typically the experience I have. I would say more of the bloating side of things. And as I mentioned, I also get like the sneezing elements of it. And it's fascinating to me because I always kind of wonder what's going on in my body. And I think some of us, for whatever reason, whether it was the way that we were born through genetics or the way that we are raised through our lifestyle, some of us really have trouble digesting things. And a lot of people have gut issues. And so if you can get a little support by just taking a pill that can help you break down starches and sugars from things like gluten, it's really lovely. And I just find the whole just having that available to me very like assuring, right? Like, okay, you know what? This is giving me my best chance and I still get to indulge a little bit as well. So I've been very grateful for BioOptimizers. It's non-GMO. It doesn't have any soy or dairy. It's vegetarian capsules, of course, and it's made in the US. And Jason mentioned that he takes three or four. I actually will experiment depending on how much gluten I'm having. They recommend taking three capsules with a glass of water before each meal. And you can take up to nine nine capsules per day if you're going to have like gluten at every meal, I suppose. But sometimes I'll just take one capsule if I'm going to have a small amount and that way I can stretch my bottle so that it lasts a little bit longer. I think the timing of this for you and I to be really falling in love with bio-optimizers and their enzymes, it's great because during the holiday season, and of course, we have no idea what's going to happen with COVID or quarantine or any of that. I mean, the holidays in general are kind of a big question mark right now. But I feel like the holidays and gatherings, once those start resuming in more frequency, right? Those are the kind of situations where I find myself, you know, sort of being a little more liberal with my food choices, right? Is you go out to a Thanksgiving dinner and for years, there's been a legendary gathering in Detroit at my mom's house for a vegan Thanksgiving. I think we started the first one in 1998 and we used to have dozens of people come through my mom's house for a vegan Thanksgiving dinner because in Detroit, back in the day especially, there weren't a lot of options to find vegan Thanksgiving food. So the holidays are one of those times where it can be like, ooh, somebody made a fresh stuffing and it smells so good. Or somebody's bringing a tofurkey or somebody made some amazing fresh baked bread. And you're like, you know what? It's the spirit of connection and community and having something like the gluten guardian right in my pocket and ready to go. I feel like I can walk into those kind of family gatherings or those holiday events and be like, yo, 
I definitely want to try the stuffing. Give me a slice of bread. Hook me up with that tofurkey. You give me some of that gravy. That's cool if you use a little a wheat flour in the roux, the gravy sauce. That's cool with me. And so it's almost like I feel like products like this that work give me more mental freedom to know that I can enjoy trying different things and that I'm not going to feel like a wreck afterward, like I'm not going to pay for it. Oh, for sure. And I've actually been thinking a lot about this myself as I gear up for my big road trip that starts a week or so after. Well, I guess, you know what? I got to look at the schedule here. I think that I'm starting my road trip the day this episode comes out or the day after. Okay. So if you might be listening to this while I'm on the road, in other words, dear listener, (laughs) depends on what day you choose, but I am prepping for it as of the time that we're recording. And I've been thinking about the same thing, Jason, because part of the fun of traveling is being able to try food from areas that you don't normally visit or have never been to before. But the challenge for me when I travel is... I want to feel good. So it's tough. And that's why having something like Luton Guardian is helpful. I'm, they actually sent me a little like case, a carrying case for the enzymes. So I'm going to be using that to make it really easy to find them. Because sometimes trying to carry a whole bottle of these things around in your travel bags is tough. So I'll just throw something like that in a backpack. And that way it's always there when I need it. And I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about how much gluten I'm going to eat. I honestly... I'd really just try to avoid it. But there are times like when we went to that cafe a few weeks ago where I just wanted to try a vegan croissant, right? Because a gluten-free vegan croissant is just going to be a very different experience. Or the other sandwich was a biscuit, right? And every once in a while, you'll find both those things that are gluten-free, but it's a little bit harder. And so if I'm going to be in a city for the first time ever and maybe never return, I'm probably going to want to try something even if it doesn't make me feel great (laughs) because maybe it'll be good enough in that moment, kind of like your holiday point. And I've certainly done that too during the holidays. And so it's interesting just to always consider all these different factors and what type of food feels worth it. And I'm curious, Jason, like what is some of the best bread that comes to mind for you like that you've ever had? Like, do you have a, any good like bread memories? Well, I can tell you the best pizza crust. First of all, the first thing that comes to mind is the best pizza crust I've ever had in my life. And that is bread. So we can start there. It counts. When I went on, when I went on my first trip to Italy, I went down to the Amalfi Coast and there was a cafe in, I believe it was Sorrento. Sorrento. And I walk into this cafe and I mean, the Amalfi Coast is ridiculously beautiful. It's one of the most gorgeous places on earth that I've yet seen. And there's a lot more of earth I want to see, hopefully, when we start traveling more again. But this crust was a thin crust and it was the perfect balance of light yet dense and hearty, like a great chew factor, but it would also just kind of snap perfectly when you would bite into the crust. There was no butter in it, but it was buttery because the olive oil they used at this cafe and and all over Italy, but particularly Southern Italy was like, you have to be kidding me. And I remember it was one of those transcendent moments between that perfectly dense, fluffy, crisp, crunchy crust, the butteriness, the olive oil was spicy and light and grassy and earthy. There's sauce was insane. The vegetables were unbelievable 
unbelievably fresh and crisp. It was one of those rare moments, and I do mean rare, where I remember a meal and it was transcendent. Like you left your body a little bit. It was so good. Like you, your eyes roll back and you have to close your eyes. And it's almost like orgasmic. It's almost orgasmic. There have been a few meals in my life where you're like, there's levels, right? Like there's good. There's like, this is damn good. This is great. And then there's transcendent. And that pizza was magical. I don't think you've ever told me that story. Unlike, well, I mean, just like I don't think you've told me the story about your favorite fart, which <laughs> as a reminder to the listener to stay tuned for at the very end of this. So I, I'm not going to let you go until you tell that story, Jason. But the listener can choose not to listen. Sometimes we're talking about like good food. Is it true like that a burp or a fart at the end of a meal is like seen as a compliment? Like, <laughs> or is that like folklore? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I wow, that was so good. <laughs> I'm going to literally express how much I enjoyed that meal. Yeah, I think to add to the effect is when you do that and then you slap your belly like, my compliments to the chef. <laughs> I don't know. As a chef, I don't really receive that as a compliment. As a chef, I do receive a clean plate as a compliment, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, you asked about other bakeries, other breads. I am a huge fan of... In terms of gluten-free bakeries here in Los Angeles, there's a phenomenal one, which is in Culver City near the west side. You and I have been going there for years. I've been going there for their everything bagels and their gluten-free pumpernickel bread. And it is so wonderful. And I am pontificating and my brain is escaping me. Whitney, follow your heart, bought the company. Why am I spacing on the name? I'm spacing on it too, Jason. What the heck is that place Google, called? help us. <laughs> Rising yes, Hearts. Thank you. Thank you. Rising Hearts Bakery. Okay. Amazing gluten-free cookies, muffins, but really, 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 their bagels and their bread are off the charts good. Also here in LA, huge, huge fans of Aaron McKenna's. They are old school. When I lived in New York City back in 06, I used to go down to the Lower East Side and ravage Aaron McKenna's. She's got two locations here in LA. One is in Larchmont and one is right near our friend Ellie's shop on Montana and Santa Monica, but really good scones. Her sweet stuff is really tops at Aaron McKenna's. And I also have to give a shout out to a ridiculous baking company who's at the farmer's markets here in LA, RBC. Oh my God, their stuff is so good. And to round it out, I got to give a shout to my Detroit peeps, Avalon Bakery in the city of Detroit. Big, big shout out. Used to love going to Avalon. When I am home, I try and make it there, get a loaf. My mom goes there from time to time. So you asked me what my favorite breads are. That's the quick rundown. Well, there's also a company that I, I feel like it's called like Super Seed or something. They're based in LA. They're also at the farmer's market where your girlfriend works, Jason. Our friend Ellie Keats turned us on to them. I think that maybe it's all sourdough based. I'm trying to look it up right now. You know what I'm talking about. I know that you've tried it. I have tried it and it's exquisitely good. What is that called? I think it is Super Seed. Or I'm trying to find it right now. Super Bloom. That's what it is. Super Bloom. And that is lovely. And what I really like about them is that they're sourdough. And I have a fondness for sourdough, but it is gluten-free and sourdough, which are not mutually exclusive. And oh my God, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Just looking at their website right now is literally making me drool. You're torturing yourself, aren't you? I really am. And they're available. They have delivery. They're at the farmer's market. They're at stores like Pantry LA that we love. So if you're in the area, you should try them. I wonder if you can order this online. Does it say? Probably not. I bet it wouldn't be that great shipped. 
But you never know. I mean, for those of you who are outside of Los Angeles and in the United States, you could probably get some of these brands sent to you through the mail or find the equivalent, like Jason mentioned. And then if you're outside the U.S., you probably don't have to worry so much about it because a lot of the times the bread outside the United States is actually much, much better and easier to digest. I mean, I remember when I went to Greece a few years ago, I was actually on the keto diet at the time, but I thought I'm not going to worry too much about carbs when I'm traveling in Greece. Like (laughs) I may never go back and I hope I go back. It was lovely. So on my first night there, I ended up having gluten despite my attempts not to. But as I said, it's comforting and it's filling. It's very satisfying. And so a lot of times that's when I will eat bread is I'm just like looking for that quick, satisfying food. And I had something that was kind of similar to a falafel but not quite. It was some sort of like Mediterranean sandwich, but like rolled up in this special bread they had. And it was so good. And I remember thinking, all right, I might not feel good later tonight or tomorrow, but it'll be worth it. And I felt fine. And then I would just slowly test it out throughout my trip. And I can't remember if I brought any enzymes with me. I don't recall, but I also don't have any memory of feeling super sick on that trip. And So just like Jason, a lot of the times that I've traveled or had bread that has been imported. So another place to give a shout out to, I'm surprised you didn't bring them up, Jason, but we have mentioned them before, is Verde in Baltimore, who makes phenomenal pizza. And is theirs technically gluten-free or is it like the in-between? Because that's what's interesting. Some companies are like low gluten is what they call it. I think it was gluten-free because I remember us raving saying this is the best gluten-free pizza crust we've ever had. And it was. And I remember them giving our dear friends, Debbie Chu, who runs the Chew on Vegan website and social media handle, shout out to Debbie and her husband, Mike, two good friends of ours. They ended up getting some flour and making it at home. So I'm pretty, I'm almost 100% sure it was a fully gluten-free crust. And my God, like, Anybody who lives in Baltimore or plans on traveling to Baltimore, like I'm thinking about that pizza right now, Whitney, and I'm just like, but we did talk about another episode. Might as well mention them again, since this is our bread episode. It's not necessarily meant to be a gluten free episode either. We just the two of us have had experiences on both sides. The two places that I really actually I should say three places that I've had recently and really, really enjoyed. One is someplace I've been to a ton during quarantine is Pura Vita. And they now have a pizzeria in addition to their Italian restaurant. They're right next door to each other in West Hollywood. And they offer gluten-free options for almost every single dish. And their gluten-free crust is phenomenal. And the restaurants are entirely vegan too. So it's really easy to eat at. But their crust is just like fantastic. And then there's a wonderful pizza place called Pizzana, which imports in their flour. So it actually reminded me of Verde. So again, if, if you're on the West Coast or in Los Angeles, Pizzana is quite nice. I, I don't know if they have locations elsewhere in the US, but they have a few in LA. And then the third we shouted out recently, which is La Mora Pizza, which was delivered to us. And they use a sourdough crust. And I don't think that was gluten-free, was it, Jason? It was just a vegan sourdough, right? Yeah, but it was legit for a frozen pizza. It was the best crust I ever had on a frozen pizza, gluten-free or not. Like it was so fluffy, but crisp. Like it was that snappy, yummy mouthfeel. Like their Lamora's crust was legit. It also brings up to me like the sort of subgenres of pizza, since we're kind of riffing on pizza and bread, we're just jumping around a lot that 
there's a lot of pride in different cities around regional cuisine. You know how there's food identities and certain cities have like, they're very passionate about their local cuisine. And certainly with pizza, having grown up in Detroit and lived in Chicago and New York and now in LA, trying different pizzas in different cities, how they do it differently. So it's been very cool to me to see the rise of Detroit style deep dish pizza. And here's what I mean by Detroit style deep dish. So where it originated is maybe up for contention. A lot of people say it's Buddy's Pizzeria, which is still a really popular chain in Detroit. But Detroit style deep dish, it's not as doughy or thick as Chicago deep dish, but it is in a square pan. So Detroit style deep dish, you do get a nice thick crust, really good cheese, lots of spicy sauce, veggies, whatever you want. But the crust is crisped and browned on the edges to where it's like slightly charred, but it's always, always, always done in a square pan. So you don't have like a thick edge of crust, like the toppings and the sauce and the cheese go right to the edges on a Detroit style deep dish. Now, the cool thing about this is there is a place here in LA called Nick's on Beverly. My mom was here over the holidays last year. We went to Nick's. She wanted to go to all the vegan places in LA when she comes visit. And we saw on the menu, it said Detroit style deep dish pizza. And we looked at each other like, this is some bullshit. Come on. Like we're not in Detroit. You're going to, you're going to throw Detroit style deep dish on two Detroiters who were in LA. Come on now. So we had to roll the dice and see what it was. This damn deep dish at Nick's on Beverly, legit Whitney, was better than the deep dish Detroit style pizzas I have in Detroit. And so the server comes back. We're like, um, so we're from Detroit. She's actually in town from Detroit. And this pizza is better than the pizzas back home. How the hell is this possible? He said, oh yeah. So the chef who makes our pizza originally from Detroit. So you can get Detroit style deep dish pizza here in LA and just opened this past month in Portland, which is, I may or may not move there. We'll see. A fully Detroit style deep dish pizzeria in Portland, Oregon. That's also 100% vegan. Like what world are we living in? Like I can go to LA, I can go to Portland and get my Detroit style deep dish pizza. So anyway, shout out to Detroit, shout out to their amazing pizza and the veganization of that pizza. I think I had that pizza you're referring to at Nick's on Beverly. It certainly wasn't gluten-free. Oh, you're right. I'm looking at their menu right now. I didn't even notice it was called Detroit style. That's so interesting. And I guess that is what I had because I had pizza there. And so Jason is a Detroit style. It reminded me almost like of a bruschetta. If I remember correctly, it was like mostly crust, like thick, moist, like oily crust with like a thin layer of I remember being ricotta, and maybe that was because I got the ricotta. They have four different styles of these pizzas at Nick's and Beverly right now. So I remember like reminding me more of like a flatbread or a bruschetta. Yeah. I mean, typically though, you're going to have like a closer 50-50 ratio of like topping sauce cheese to crust, like I said, as opposed to a Chicago style deep dish, which is a really thick crust, right? You have a high ratio of crust. So the Detroit style, yeah, it's, it's a super crispy edge. You don't have a thick doughy crust on it, right? It's like, it's right up to the edge. And it is, I don't know, I guess bruschetta-like, but you do, it is very crispy. And typically it's just dense, right? It's not like a light pizza. It's oily. It's crispy. It's charred. But holy shit, is it so good? Like, I feel like I might need to get one this week, Whitney. Like, this is torturous now. This is torturous. Time to put Gluten Guardian to the test once more. And it's also square, right? Is Detroit style pizza always square? Always, always, always. Detroit style deep dish without fail is square. If it ain't square, it ain't Detroit style. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. I really did not know that that was a thing. So this has been educational for me, too. I love how this conversation about bread turned into so much talk about pizza. And it really goes to show how far things have come. If I haven't said this before on the show, I distinctly remember at the beginning of my vegan journey thinking, well, I guess I'm never going to have pizza again because back in 2003, it was hard to find vegan pizza. There were a couple places in the U.S., like literally a handful, at least that you could find online. Like maybe some existed, but like aside from Portland, maybe LA had that. I don't even know if LA really had that much. There was a dedicated vegan pizza shop in Boston where I went vegan and it wasn't that great and no longer exists, but it was good enough. Like you were just so grateful to have it. And I think they might have used Chicago soy dairy. Is that what it was called? Chicago soy dairy? Dandy's company? Back in the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they changed the name to what? I don't know. It doesn't have the word soy in it anymore, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm going to look that up right now. But I think they had their pizza, which was called what? Oh, it was called Teas. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. They changed the name to Chicago Vegan Foods. And Teas was like an OG, but that was like one of the best. I think Teas was around before Daya Cheese, which was like the revolutionary vegan cheese. Teas was really ahead of its time. And then next to that, they had Follow Your Heart, which, as we mentioned, owns one of the bakeries we, we really like called Rising Hearts. But Follow Your Heart Cheese in the beginning, back in the old days of veganism was disgusting. Like, I'm just going to say, follow your heart. I love you now. You've come a very long way. They have great cheeses now. Even Daya has come a long way because Daya was good for what it was, but it wasn't that great. <laughs> and both companies have really evolved over time. And now there's so much competition. I think they kind of have to. But I remember the first time I tried to make a vegan pizza and it was either in 2003 or 2004. And I was so disappointed. I was just like, all right, this is my life now. I guess I should just get used to never having pizza again because it's never going to taste as good. And wow, was I wrong? Because now as we've listed off all these amazing pizza shops, you can get incredible pizza that is just as good, if not in some cases better than a dairy-based pizza. And even the gluten-free crust are getting really good that sometimes those taste just as good, if not better. Like Pura Vida's gluten-free crust is phenomenal. I'm going to put you on the hot spot, Whitney. What are your three favorite cheese brands right now? This episode is about bread, not cheese. I We started off with farts and poop, and then we went to bread and digestion and then pizza, and we can go anywhere we want to. It's our damn podcast. But seriously, like, what are your top three cheeses right now? I'm curious. Okay. Hands down is BioLife. I think overall, if I had to choose one brand to be loyal to, it would be BioLife because their feta is one of the best vegan cheeses I've ever had in all my years of being vegan, which is 17 years now. Their mozzarella and their cheddar are pretty good. The shreds, I don't think are fantastic. The cheese slices are fantastic. And I do recall that they had like the same manufacturer or something as Follow Your Heart because Follow Your Heart's slices are also quite great, but they had like a slight difference in ingredients, similar texture. Violife is just incredible. Like their smoked cheeses unbelievable. They have cream cheeses. I mean, they pretty much have everything. One cheese that I haven't seen in stores very often is that one, what's it called? The halami? Is that how you pronounce it? Where you can like grill it up? Like you can actually grill the cheese? 
Halloumi. Yes. I mean, hands down, they have such a great variety of pretty much any cheese you could imagine. And their feta is just, it leaves me speechless. Their Parmesan's really good too, because it comes in like a block. So you get to shred it yourself and you can put it in like a traditional Parmesan shredder, whatever those little wheel things are. And then Follow Your Heart has a good Parmesan, but it's not quite as good and it already comes pre-shred. So it doesn't taste as fresh. I don't think it lasts as long. So yeah, Violife is number one for me. Number two is Miyoko's. Miyoko's has a variety of nice products as well. I haven't had much experience with her shreds yet because those are relatively new, but she She's really just nailed the kind of cheese wheel, like the round cheeses that you would have on crackers. Her mozzarella, I appreciate, but the flavor and the melting factor have not quite hit it for me. I've often been disappointed. They haven't quite given me that taste craving I've I've wanted. The third, I don't know who would be third. I feel like... Hmm. I would probably pick some random local company because there's a lot of really lovely companies out there like the Uncreamery makes a delicious brie. There's brands all around the country, like very small, not quite national in some cases, more like the local vegan cheeses would probably be my third choice just because those are often delightful. And the homemade cheeses or the house-made cheeses, I should say, at like pizza restaurants like Pura Vida, I think they make their own cheese that they put on their pizzas and it's fantastic. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add because you took my top two. (laughs) Rather, we share the same top two and your assessment of what's good and maybe needs improvement in their product line, spot on. And I also do think that I get really excited as you are about to embark on this road trip of trying local artisan manufacturers. That's one of my favorite things to do in travels is to find these local producers, as you said, and the variations and the different tastes and the different spices and the processes they use. I always find that so exciting. And in fact, I'm a little bit jealous because you're going to be going back to one of my favorite, our favorite, small natural markets, Deborah's, and you always find cool new shit there, Whitney. And actually, Deborah's has, I'm glad you brought that up because I would have forgotten about this. Deborah's has one of my favorite breads of all time. And I'm laughing because <laughs> this bread feels so old school. I'm going to look them up right now. It's called Delands. And it's one of those brands that really needs a branding makeover because it looks like they have not changed their branding since <laughs> 1986. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the mid 80s. It really does. It is like 80s, maybe even 70s. Like their website looks like it was built in the early 2000s. Like bless their hearts. They have made some progress though over the years since I discovered them. It's called Deland. Actually, I always say Deland's uh, plural, but it's just Deland. And we'll put them in the show notes along with every brand we've mentioned. And Deland, I think is phenomenal because I think all, if not most of their products are made from millet. They have a certified gluten-free. Some of them are organic, vegan. Like they have all these labels. I'm I'm on their website and they have like every major certification you could want, non-GMO. Some of their products, I think, made from whole grains. They're made in the US. They don't use corn syrup. They're corn-free. Like they're so mindful 
And that's why I can excuse them for their old school branding. But what I love about them is their ingredients are super simple. So they have a few different lines. They're like main line. They just call it the all natural brand or the all natural line, I should say. And it's incredibly simple. It's organic millet flour, organic brown rice flour, garlic, or I guess this was the flavored one. Hold on. Let me go find the non-flavored example here to read off the list for you. Okay, here we go. They're all natural flax millet bread is just millet flour, golden flax seeds, brown rice flour, water, sea salt, and yeast. So simple. And I thought there's no way this is good. It's fantastic. It makes the best sandwich bread. You get some of that, you put it in the toaster and it's perfect. It's light. What stood out about them to me after trying a lot of vegan gluten-free breads out there is that it wasn't too dense. And up until recently, it was most vegan gluten-free breads were thick and they just tasted too homemade to me, if that makes sense. Like I was describing with the vegan keto breads, they're not quite there yet. So that's pretty great. Now they have certified gluten-free breads, but I think some of those, if not all of those, are not vegan. So double check the labels. They do have vegan pizza crust now, which I don't remember if I've tried. They have a ton of products. They have certified organic breads now. They've really expanded. They just have chosen to keep their old school design, which that's fine. It's no big deal. So I'll link to their website so you can go check them out. And the reason I bring them up is because they're sold at Deborah's. And Deborah's is like one of those stores that I think actually has, it's kind of got a, um, I want to say like great reputation, but a, a kind of like a legacy. Deborah is an actual person. And she's just like kind of cool. She's like pretty much your stereotypical like hippie woman. And I don't mean any like, I don't know why I would even need to say this, but not like an offense. I She's just like a cool, like natural store owner, you know, but I don't know how old she is exactly. But she's just pretty much what you would imagine if you have the same imagination as me. And it's a small little store in Massachusetts that's just so sweet. And they have amazing natural brands, mostly organic, a lot of local products there. And it's just a delightful experience, very similar to Rainbow Grocery in San Francisco, which is a much larger version. And that is probably my favorite grocery store in the whole world. But Jason, in addition to going to Deborah's, I'm going to be hitting up co-ops all across the country. And when we do my summary episode that is coming up on the show... Once I get to Massachusetts, I'm going to talk about all the different experiences that I had during that road trip. Not to rub it in to you, Jason, but just to share what I've discovered across the country. I have a request when possible and also a fun idea. You ready for this? Sure. If possible, because obviously we have to think about spoilage and shelf life and stuff like that, that if there are things you can obtain that have a decent shelf life, you bring them back. And when you do your summary episode, as you're talking about these foods, I can be doing a taste test on the other end of this microphone, having my own experience in real time, which will be kind of like a mukbang podcast hybrid summary thing. Yay? Yay and nay, because the summary episode that we're doing will happen when I'm still on the East Coast. But that's bullshit. <laughs> but I can still bring you products and we can talk about them in a future episode. 
That'll work. I'm going to be on the East Coast for quite some time, so we don't want to delay it too much. I want like a fresh off of the road episode for our listeners who may be eager. And since this episode comes out before I leave, the day before I leave for my trip, actually, if all things go as planned, you can follow my journey on this road trip and all the foods that I may experience through my social media. I have yet to determine if I'll be posting about it on the Eco Vegan Gal account, probably. It's very likely I'm going to be posting there and on my new account at Whit Lauritsen. And then perhaps also on Wellevator if I want to get a little, if I want to take on a lot, or maybe Jason can just like reshare some of my Instagram stories. I'll tag him in it and make it easy, but we want to make it easy for you. So we'll link to all my accounts. <laughs> for those of you who don't know yet, I'm eventually going to transition away from Eco Vegan Gal, the brand that I've had for over 10 years, mainly because I want to do things a little bit differently differently. And that name doesn't serve me. And I thought about just changing the username, but I don't know. I think it'd be nice to preserve it and maybe like dip back into it when I felt like it. So we'll see what happens. Now, the more I'm talking about, the more I actually need to post on Eco Vegan Gal, but I'll be trying to drive more traffic to the new account at Wit Lauritsen. So if you're somebody that doesn't want to miss out on anything, you might as well follow all three of those accounts, including at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R, so that you can stay up to date on things. And then we're on Instagram as well as Facebook and YouTube, Pinterest, TikTok, all these different platforms platforms, not to overwhelm you, but just to give you a lot of variety because we don't know exactly where you are unless you tell us. We have our websites, as we mentioned, that's kind of the main hub. You can subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet so that you don't miss out on the episodes that are coming up. We have three episodes a week, as Jason mentioned at the beginning of this. We have a lot coming your way. And again, it's not meant to overwhelm you, but it's just to give you a lot. And clearly we have a lot to say on a lot of different subject matters. Well, Jason, should we save your story for the very end of the episode? Or are you so eager that you can't contain it anymore? I want to save it to the end. I also, in real time, want to tell you about a compliment that we received on our podcast, which I felt was very poignant and a piece of feedback that I felt was really wonderful. Before we get to the Frequently Asked Queries and my epic, legendary Hall of Fame fart story. So our friend Ellie Keats that we've mentioned many times, which we are long overdue to have her on a, on the podcast, but she's in Hawaii and doing things there. And we'll make it happen at some point with Ellie Keats. Ellie's sister, Caitlin, her younger sister, Caitlin, as long as I've known Ellie, and I had the great pleasure of having a matcha with her the other day. And she's like, hey, I've been listening to the podcast. I had no idea she was. She said, I think it's really, really great. Now, two things. Katie has been in entertainment and voiceover and acting for a long time. So her opinion brings a weight in that sense. But beyond that, she also is the host of a few podcasts on Spotify. That's what she does now for her business. So she's in deeply entrenched in the podcast world. I said, I didn't even know you were listening. She said, yeah. She said, you guys are phenomenal. I said, Katie, this is crazy to me. She's never mentioned it. She said, yeah, the subject matter is interesting and diverse. She said, but the thing I think that is really great about it is the relationship you and Whitney have. She said, you dig into kind of like the psychology of why people listen to podcasts. Yeah, some people are interested in the subject matter. She said, but the real 
fervent fanaticism and what people really get hooked on and come back for is, especially with multiple host podcasts, is the relationship dynamic. I said, I had no idea. She said, that's my favorite part is the banter and the relationship you and Whitney have built over many years. That authenticity, that heart, that connection comes through. She's like, yeah, I like the subjects. I think they're great and interesting, she said, but it's the relationship and your dynamic that really has me coming back and listening to multiple episodes. And I thought that was just one of the most lovely pieces of feedback. And thank you, Katie, if you're out there uh, listening. We love you. We appreciate your listenership and you sharing it with your friends. And thanks for that feedback. That is lovely feedback. And yeah, it's interesting with the podcast because the feedback we get often takes longer to receive than it does on other mediums. And it is fascinating. It's kind of not to be doing things in real time, unlike Instagram, where you can post and you immediately get feedback or TikTok or most other platforms are very quick. And so I feel like you can adapt very fast and you can give people what they want and stop doing what they don't like or do whatever the hell you want. Ultimately, (laughs) with this show, it's been so fascinating, especially as we've done over 100 episodes now. It's a lot of just trying things out and slowly getting feedback on it. And that's really lovely to hear. And that's a reminder for us to ask you, the listener, if you haven't given us feedback. We really enjoy hearing it, whether you do that publicly or privately. So publicly could be on social media. It could be comments on our website, the show notes, as we mentioned, at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can send in questions and requests and comments, feedback, whatever you would like. And you can also do that through iTunes and one other platform. Is it Stitcher, perhaps? I always forget which the there's only two platforms that I know of where you can leave reviews. You might be able to do it on IMDb, which we are on. So whichever you fancy, most people like to leave review on Apple iTunes. And that's kind of like where people think it counts. So if you are listening on an Apple device, you can easily leave a little review there. And we love the authentic ones. Like we love the specific feedback. You can rate with stars and you can type something if you'd like as well. And whatever you think is beneficial for other people, that's really who it's for. If your reviews and feedback does help us and it's flattering sometimes, but reviews ultimately are to help other people. So if you want somebody else to hear this show, you can be part of that by leaving a detailed perspective on why you listen to the show and what you like about it. And we love reading that. So thank you to anybody who has done that. And if you haven't gotten around to it yet and you want to, whenever you're ready, we'll look forward to hearing from you in whatever capacity, publicly or privately. So we usually do brand shout outs, but we have our sponsor today. And I think we've done enough shouting out of all these other brands, but just as a reminder of our amazing sponsor, Bio Optimizers, who makes these incredible enzymes. We're going to be talking about them throughout a few upcoming episodes. We'll talk more about Jason's gout and the other enzymes they make. They make probiotics. They make all sorts of wonderful vitamins and minerals and just a whole line of supplements to help you feel your best, which is what we're all about. Optimizing your life is something we're passionate about. Although we do recommend doing that in balance and not living your entire life optimizing because you need time to rest too. And I think actually what's cool about things like Gluten Guardian is it makes sure that your body feels balanced and it doesn't feel like it's overworking itself. It allows you to relax a little bit more and enjoy foods that might be hard for you to digest. So you can check that out through wellevator.com or you can go directly to their website, biooptimizers.com and be sure to use our discount code, which is wellevator10 
10 for 10% off. And we would love to hear any feedback you have about their products and if it works as well for you. Be sure to check if you are vegan like we are because not every single one of their products is vegan. They use some animal products in some of their products. But if it says that it's vegetarian capsules, they'll be listed as a non-dairy as well. And you can always email them and double check some things. Some things are listed as vegan. You can email us as well and we can get in touch with them for you because we want to support you in making that really easy. You know, Jason, I don't have any super exciting frequently asked queries to go over today. I'll take a quick peek, but sometimes I'm a little bit more prepared with this than others. And today, I don't know if I feel like super excited. Like, what can I tie into this? I love to find queries that feel related to what we're talking about. And I feel like we covered some really good ones the other day. And then sometimes that leaves me with less. Actually, this one's kind of cute. This falls into the interesting category for me. Somebody typed in bulldog mindset. What do you think that means? Since you talked about Bella at the beginning, what's a bulldog mindset? What is the bulldog mindset? It is being incessantly determined to get what you want to the point of annoying someone till they capitulate. Bulldog. Definitely. Just being a bully. And also, yeah, wantonly and ruthlessly farting anywhere and everywhere and on anyone you choose. The bulldog mindset is dogged determination and extreme flatulence to coerce your guardian to bend to your will, basically, is the bulldog mindset. I think that's pretty good. Although your dog, Bella, I feel like she's not like a bulldog in the traditional sense. She's very soft and gentle a lot of times. I mean, she gets riled up, but she knows when she needs to calm down, right? Like she'll go lay in her bed and be pretty chill. Yeah, but there are moments where I'm like, yeah, it's a bulldog. She's not going to let you forget she's a bulldog. So sometimes when she wants to play, she'll bring her bone over. No, I don't want to play right now. Bring the bone back over. Bring the bone, bring the bone, bring the bone. So yeah, she can be very insistent, I believe is the word that I want to use. But you know what? She's a great teacher because it means that she's determined to get what she wants. And I admire that about her. She's a great teacher. I love it when animals teach us things like that. All right. One actually that I found, which is kind of funny, simply because it's like a bit of an inside joke for us, Jason, is somebody was searching for flabbergasting meaning, which is interesting because flabbergasting, I always think of like flabbergasted, but gastine, is there a difference between being flabbergasted and flabbergasting? Well, I'm looking it up to see if flabbergasting is a thing, and I don't know that flabbergasting is a thing. Flabbergast, the definition is to surprise someone greatly or astonish them. And a use of that would be like, you know, I went to Nick's on Beverly for the first time and I was flabbergasted. They had Detroit style deep dish. You're welcome. That's exactly the voice that I was thinking of. I want to give that character a name. Like if he had a name, what would it be, Jason, that voice that you do? I feel like it's a middle-aged white suburban man who happens to be like a high school teacher. I don't even know what his name would be. <laughs> I don't know. Because all that's coming to mind is like Herb or Norman, but that's like no one's named that anymore. That's like our grandparents' era. I don't know. I feel like it would just be like a very like white suburban male Midwestern name. Like what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Neil? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, Hi, guys. I'm Neil. And I get surprised <laughs> and flabbergasted by things all the time. Neil. His name's Neil. I was going to say Bert. Bert. Oh, hey, guys. I'm Bert. That works, too. (laughs) 
Oh, man. It's kind of like uh, there's a character in Saturday Night Live that he's like the dad, like the happy-go-lucky Midwestern dad with glasses. I don't know what his name is on that show. If anyone knows who I'm talking about, you can shout us out on social media or something. But he's like the dad that comes down to the basement when the kids are having a little pizza party. And he's like, hey, guys, just checking in. Do you need anything? <laughs> I wonder if you'd be that type of dad, Jason. Like, how dare you? Like, would you go down to the basement and be like, hey, guys, just checking to see if you need anything? It depends on the age, because at a certain age, if they're teenagers, they're probably masturbating or doing drugs. So it depends on the age. Oh, my gosh. I really hope you do become a dad, Jason, because I think that you'd be really good at it for the most part. All right. Let's see. One more query. I have a bunch of serious queries, but I feel like we're not like in a serious mood. So I don't know if I want to. Nah, I'm going to skip these. I'll save these for another episode because then it could get really dark and we need to talk about farts now. So I think we should just go ahead and pull the trigger and you should let it rip. Uh I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Okay, so legendary fart story, Hall of Fame fart story. It is junior high school. I am in the seventh grade. So I am probably, what, 12 or 13 at this point? And it's homeroom class. It's Tuesday morning, homeroom. And the homeroom teacher is a gruff, angry, gristled, hobbit-like man named Mr. Shaparian. And that's how he talked. Hello, class. I am Mr. Shaparian, and welcome to homeroom. He was just angry. Mr. Shaparian was angry. Wait, you're not like doing a, um, like a cultural voice, sorry. Oh, what's the accent? Well, I'm attempting to do Mr. Shaparian's voice. He was Armenian, but he just, he didn't move his mouth very much. So he just had this very like, he just always had like a crispy, crunchy rasp to his voice. And he was just mad all the time. So homeroom class, it's Tuesday morning. I, God knows what I ate for breakfast that morning, but I have a rampant case of SBD, right? And now SBD is great because SBD for the listener doesn't know means silent but deadly. That means you can just rip away and no one knows, right? No one can detect who the culprit is, right? And you also don't want to announce it because we know the first rule of farts is he or she who smelt it dealt it. So you don't want to announce like, who? oh God, it's disgusting. So I'm just quiet. I'm minding my own business. This is like DEFCON 5 like drop me in the middle of a war zone and I will clear the battlefield. Like these are some of the worst farts I have ever conjured from my sphincter, right? They're bad. Wait, wait, wait. What did you eat that led to this? Again, I mentioned that I have been allergic to dairy my whole life. It doesn't mean that I cheated. So every once in a while, I'd get like a Dannon fruit on the bottom yogurt and then just put up with the flatulence and the stomach pain. (laughs) Wait a second. You're telling me that when you would indulge in dairy, you would go for a Dannon fruit on the bottom yogurt. Like that was what you decided to risk it all for? For breakfast, Whitney. It's 8 a.m. in homeroom. So yes, for breakfast, I would do a fruit on the bottom yogurt. I was a mango and blueberry kind of guy. Oh, man. You know, I will say that there are more vegan yogurts now that have gotten really tasty because we also went through that phase where vegan yogurt was horrific. Now there's more vegan yogurt that I can keep up with. And now I'm seeing some that have fruit mixed in. Like sometimes it's on the side where you get to pour it in. And I think there are some vegan yogurts with fruit on the bottom. So we've come a long way since those days. Thank God. The far cry from 1991. 1991, fruit on the bottom yogurt. My stomach's not having it. 
gastrointestinal system, red alert, DEFCON 5, drop them in the battlefield status. So I'm just launching an all-out assault on homeroom, and people are getting disgusted. Like, people are making gagging noises. Now, if I start cracking up, that's going to be a dead giveaway. So I am biting my tongue, and I'm pinching my inner thigh so that I don't laugh, because then they will immediately give me away. And I want to be incognito fart ripper, because it's bringing me so much joy to see how disgusted people are. Now, so I'm poker face, right? I'm biting my lip. I'm pinching my thigh. Homeroom bell rings. Mr. Shaparian just like shuffles in, right? In his grumpy ass self. And he walks in the room. He shuts the door to his homeroom. And he pauses and everyone gets quiet because he's so angry. And you see him kind of look blankly and kind of rotate his head like an oscillating fan with this quizzical puzzled look on his face. And he starts sniffing the air just like like a dog. Like, like you see a dog looking around and sniffing the air trying to figure out where it comes from. And he goes out loud, loudly to the entire crest. He goes, who is the animal? It smells like a barnyard in here. I lose my shit. I fall out of my seat laughing. And everyone's, it was Jason did it. Jason did Like, it broke me. When he said, who is the animal? It smells like a barnyard in here. I lost my shit. I broke my cover. Poker face was done and I was outed. And I was kind of ostracized for a few weeks after that fart session. <laughs> Oh, I'm still proud of that moment years later, almost 30 years later. I will say you have told me the story before, Jason, not to burst your bubble, but I do recall it now that you've shared it again. And it does actually remind me of a very similar story on the airplane that you had with our friend Ellie that we mentioned earlier. Oh, my God. God bless Ellie Keats. Ellie, if you're listening, I'm sorry, but I'm outing you. You are a legendary ripper. And you have created scenes on airplanes as a result of your flatulence, many of which have brought me great joy to see how uncomfortable you've made people on airplanes with your farts. (laughs) Man, I'm trying to think if I've ever been on the receiving end of like, I mean, in those situations where you can't leave, like you just have to sit there in it of somebody else's fart. I don't have any immediate memories of that. Have do you, Jason? Like some a stranger and you're like, "Oh my god, I can barely breathe, but I'm stuck." No. You're laughing about this almost as if like it brings you joy to be the person that puts somebody in that compromising position, but it's also like, "Wow, okay." <laughs> If you've been on the receiving end of it, you might not laugh so hard, I suppose. (laughs) The one situation that comes to mind that is pretty consistent is at concerts, and you'll just be in a giant crowd, and that is probably the safest most inconspicuous place if you are a chronic fart ripper is at a concert because it is indetectable and virtually impossible to uh, track down the origin of the said fart. Wow. Well, I'm really curious who stuck with us through the end of this, who enjoys hearing fart stories. Like you might be a, what's it called? A glutton for punishment. Maybe you have some sick pleasure or you just like laughing at fart stories. I don't know. But I hope that you tell us if you want to privately message us through email or direct messenger on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. And if you have a fart story that you want to share, even anonymously, maybe we'll share it on your behalf. in an upcoming episode because we're going to be talking about digestion at least one more time because our sponsorship with bio optimizers and i wonder how they feel about it as a brand like what if they came back to us and they're like hey guys please don't talk about farts and our brand together anymore i mean we're taking big swings whitney we're taking big swings that's what we do here on this might get uncomfortable we would not be fulfilling the name of our show if we didn't do things that polarize people so that's it for today 
Thank you, dear listener, if you made it through the end. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you and your fart stories if you would like to share them. If you don't want to share them, that's okay with us too. Until next time, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us. And we'll be back with another episode in just a few days. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.